chapter 6, verse 12 to verse 20. Again, 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 12 to verse 20. If you are using the Pew Bible, it's on page 955. And this is a wonderful passage. Help us to understand the theology of our body. Let's stand and read God's holy word together. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your body are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the reading of God's word. Peace be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we're able to gather together to sit under the preaching of your word. We recognize that your power is manifest as we hear your word preached. For your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword that divides soul and spirit. We ask that you would do a work within us to see the truth of your word, the beauty of it, and to be able to apply it in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So there was a study in 2014 that asked Christian singles between the ages of 18 to 59 this question, would you have sex before marriage? The response, 63% of Christian respondents responded, yes. And a Christian writer comments on this statistic, in my 30 years of youth and adult ministry experience, this is as unfiltered, direct, and honest as a question and answer can be. In practice, Christian young adults have become sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on that subject of any consequence or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct is the ultimate oxymoron. A person who at once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them in all things can also believe simultaneously he should not, cannot, or will not inform their thinking or living sexually. And this shows that sexual morality, sexual sin, does not exist only outside the church. It lives and breathes still within the church as well. 
that sexual immorality continues to exist among us. We hear reports of it, sexual abuse scandals within the Southern Baptist Convention. We read reports of pastors involved in extramarital affairs. We may even talk to believers who engage in premarital sex. I read of a college pastor once asking students who returned to his church for summer break, he asked them this question, so who have you been sleeping with? And the common response is, how did you know? We hear of how many people within the church, both guys and gals, even use pornography. Sexual immorality exists within the church. Now, it's easy for us to think, well, Henry must be talking about other churches. This can't possibly happen here at HCC, but I assure you that there are people who are sitting here among you who struggle with sexual sin. You just may not know it. And now the problem of sexual morality within the church is not just a 21st century problem. And some people think that if I just hop in my time machine DeLorean, leap back to the first century, then I would find a sexually pure church. But it's not the case. Because if you've been here the last few weeks, then you would know that sexual immorality existed within the first century church of Corinth. A man sleeping with his stepmom. And one would think... They had the best pastor possible, the great apostle Paul. This church should not have this many problems, this many troubles, but it did. And the troubled church in Corinth reminds me of something that my mentor once told me at work. Nothing changes but the faces. Now, the message title for this week is a holy church. The adjective holy means set apart or distinct. So how do we become a church that is distinct, that is holy in its sexual conduct? How does a holy church avoid sexual immorality? How does it turn away from sexual sin? To answer this question, we'll be looking again at the letter that Paul penned to the Corinthian church. We'll be specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you haven't turned there already. Please do turn there, either in your pew Bible or in your Bible app, because you'll want to pay attention to the text this week. Now, if you recall from last week's sermon, there we ended on a vice list that began in verse 9. And I'm just going to read it as a means of review. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greeter, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, if you recall, Jason provided a trailer for this week's sermon when he stated that the first few terms in this vice list, sexually immoral, idolater, adulterer, men who practice homosexuality, set up for this sermon today on this idea of sexual sin. And though the Corinthians, as it says in verse 11, were washed, sanctified, and justified, they still struggled with sexual sin. And so this morning's text will address this particular topic, that Paul will show us what does sexually immoral behavior reveal about the way that we think 
And then he'll offer two correctives about understanding our bodies. So he answers these questions. What does sexual immorality reveal about our thinking? And what are two things that we need to understand about our bodies? So first, what does sexual immorality reveal about our thinking? It reveals that our thinking is flawed, that sexual immorality reveals wrong thinking in our theology. It demonstrates that we aren't quite thinking clearly about what we know of God, that there's something wrong or something faulty within our logic. Sexual wrongdoing, sexual sin, they expose a failure within our ability to reason and to think clearly about God's view of sex. Sexual immorality reveals this wrong thinking in our theology. Now, Paul exposes the wrong thinking of the Corinthians. He tries and attempts to show the Corinthians the flaws in their argument. Now, what was that wrong thinking? Now, in this text, in verses 12 through 20, you're going to see three slogans, three sayings, or in our common parlance now, three perhaps memes that the Corinthians used to justify their sexual misbehavior. Now, if you look at your Bibles, and this is why it's important to have a Bible in front of you, if you look from verse 12 to 20, you'll notice in verse 12, there is a phrase with quotes in it. And then in verse 13, there is another phrase with quotes in it. <clears throat> those two would then form those two common misunderstandings. But then, Henry, you said there were three. The third one would be found in verse 18, but there are no quotes. And so we'll go into that a little bit more as we continue in this message. Now, let's talk about the first sexual slogan that they believed in. First slogan. They believe that God gave us the freedom to do whatever we want. Uh, look at verse 12. Look at the, thing, the phrase within the quotes. <coughs> All things are lawful for me. Now, the Corinthians may have conceived of this slogan, this saying, when they heard from Paul, now, you as Christians are free to eat whatever food you want. No food is unlawful for you. So enjoy your bacon, your pork chops, your lobster, and your oysters. But then they extended this freedom from food to sex. They co-opted Paul's teaching, believing it meant, now that I'm Christian, I am free to engage in whatever sexual behavior I want. This includes, as we'll discover later, sleeping with prostitutes. So the first wrong thinking is that the freedom that I have in Christ allows me to do anything including sexual sin. Let's look at the second idea that the Corinthians used to justify their sin. The second idea is this. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter because eventually it will be destroyed. Now look at verse 13. It says this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and, will, and God will destroy both one and the other. God will destroy food and our stomachs one day, so while we still have our bodies, let's continue to indulge in our appetites. If we have a sexual desire, then we should seek to satisfy them, even if it means engaging in sexual sin. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter. Now let's look at the last idea that the Corinthians used to justify their sexual sin. It's this, 
that sin has no physical consequences. Yes, we may sin, but it's merely spiritual, mental, or emotional. Uh, Look at the latter half of verse 18. It says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Now, the word other seems to indicate that Paul is contrasting two types of sin, sexual sin and all other sins. But in the original language, the word other is omitted. So if you have an ESV, you will notice, again, it's important to have your Bible open. In verse 18, there should be a footnote above the word sin. And in my Bible, it has the number four. Now, then you look at the bottom of your page, and it gives you an alternative reading, which says every sin, where the word other is taken out. And in other translations, such as the NASB as well as the NET, to provide this alternative reading, because this is a slogan that the Corinthians use to justify their sexual sin. <coughs> sexual sin does not involve, then, the body. It's an experience. It's a non-physical incident. Now, you may be thinking, well, these Corinthians clearly did not pass logic school. Their reasoning fails to have any type of appeal. Now, before we judge the Corinthians too harshly, I can't help but wonder if we do the same thing, if we think without logic or reason. Because I feel that sometimes we use our wrong thinking in our theology to justify our own sexual misbehavior. (coughs) We don't always think rightly when we engage in sexual sin. Now, you may be wondering, well, how how do we do that? Well, let me give you some examples. We engage sometimes in sexual sin because we know God will forgive us. So you might think to yourself, I know what the Bible says. I can quote to you, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'll just sleep with my girlfriend just this once, and then in the morning, I'll pray, confess, ask God for forgiveness, sin problem solved. Or someone might think, well, I plan on marrying this guy. Well, why wait? I mean, in my mind, everything says we're moving in that direction. He's met my parents. My parents love him. I met his parents. His parents love me. We've been dating for five years. We've already begun shopping for a ring. So what's the harm of a sexual foretaste of things to come? Someone else might think, well, I can handle watching sexual content in my entertainment because it doesn't bother me. When I watch shows like Game of Thrones, I am unaffected by the sexual material, unlike this other person. After all, I know it's fake. I'm not like those other believers who are tempted by this stuff because I am made of stiffer mental material. Or imagine the person sitting at home, the parents are away for fellowship, my siblings are hanging out with their friends outside, and with a tap of a few keystrokes, I can indulge in my sexual fantasies because no one would ever know. It is a private matter between me and my computer screen. And we deceive ourselves. I mean, it's easy for us to trick ourselves. And our participation in sexually immoral sin reveals that we don't always think straight. We don't think as reasonably as we should. Although we may have letters after my name, B-S-B-A-M-D-J-D-P-H-D. 
our minds don't operate clearly or logically when it comes to sexual sin. Sexual sin reveals that there is something truly flawed in the way that we think about ourselves and also about God. And that is the error. That is what sexual sin reveals about the error of our thinking. Now, Paul offers two correctives to our thinking and two corrections to the way that we should think. So let's turn to the first correction. What should we think about when we face sexual temptation or the opportunity to potentially sexually sin? This is the first thing that we need to think. Our bodies belong to God. We don't have sole ownership over our bodies. God owns them. He is the master of our limbs. He is the captain that directs our steps. He is the owner of our bodies. Our bodies belong to God. Now, let's think through the implications of this idea. Since we belong to God, we should be mastered by nothing else. Nothing else, then, should be calling the shots in our lives. And we see this in the implication in the latter half of verse 12. Turn your attention there with me. It says, But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul is saying, yes, we may have many freedoms as a believer, but it doesn't mean that we have the freedom to do anything. Anything that is unhelpful is off limits. Anything that might master me is not permitted. So in other words, there are caveats to our freedoms. And this applies to many areas in your life. I mean, you can eat any food that you like. You have the freedom to go to Chick-fil-A every single day, eating it every single moment. But you know Chick-fil-A every day might mean a heart attack today. TV shows you watch, hobbies, books, video games, these are all areas of freedom but they are not your master. God is the master of your body. And in the context of sex, Paul will not allow his sexual desires to be his masters. His sex drive does not call the shots in his life. Only God will direct his steps. He will only obey the directions of God because God ultimately is the master of his body. That is the implication. Well, why then? Why does our body then belong to God? We belong to God because he redeemed our bodies. Look at the latter half of verse 13. The latter half of verse 13, it says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, the Corinthians had a dualistic type of thinking. By dualism, they believe that everything that happens in the spirit is good, everything that happens in the body, bad. And since Christ procured, got for us a spiritual relationship with God through his death on the cross, then what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. But Paul corrects this misunderstanding by pointing to a specific element in the gospel that I think oftentimes we overlook. Oftentimes when we share the gospel, we forget to mention this. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God raised Jesus from the dead in a new, not spiritual body, physical body, then that means our physical bodies are good. And Christians, 
believers, we anticipate when we will receive a resurrected body without the influence of sin, and Jesus foreshadows that reality. Now, some of us may think, well, if a resurrected body awaits us, does that mean that we can just sit and twiddle our thumbs as we wait for the resurrection? No, because we experience the resurrection in part now. That before we became believers, before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were under the power, the rule of sin. And we use our members for the pleasure of our former master, sin. But then when we placed our faith in Christ, we came under a new master, God. And this means that God rules over our entire being, body and spirit, and we use our members to serve the Lord. Now, let's think about this implication. If we truly belong to God, then we would never use our bodies for sexually immoral behavior. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. When we place our faith in Christ, we have become united with him. And this is something that we call a union with Christ. And since we are united with Christ, God no longer sees our sin, but when he sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness given to us. Now let me help you out with an image. Think of two pieces of duct tape, the gray type, okay? Two pieces of duct tape. One piece represents Christ, the other piece represents you. When you stick the two pieces together, they are nearly impossible to pull apart. This represents your union with Christ. So if you are attached to Christ, now remember duct tape, then is it possible for you to detach yourself and unite yourself with sexually immoral behavior? No. Never. May it never be. And the word never, exclamation mark, I think Paul, if he had his choice, he would underline, underscore, bold, italics, all capitals, because he's saying that this would never, ever happen. Now, why does Paul think that this is an impossibility for a believer to engage their body in sexual behavior, immoral sexual behavior? It's because there is an implication that when you unite yourself with someone sexually, you have given them mastery over your body. You have given them permission to use your body as they would like for their sexual pleasure. And to engage in sexually immoral behavior puts you under its mastery. Now, in this case, Paul is confronting the Corinthians for their use of prostitutes. Look at verse 16. This is where it shows up. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two be will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So let me use another image. Some people may think of their union with Christ like two post-it notes. Jesus represents one post-it note. I represent one post-it note. And when we stick them together, we stick together. But now, if you know anything about post-it notes, you know it's easy for someone to detach the post-it note and stick it elsewhere. When we fail to understand that our bodies belong to God, then we treat our union with Christ like a post-it note, that we can do whatever we like, posting ourselves to whatever we please, including sexually immoral behavior. 
Now, you may not be convinced that sexually immoral behavior might master you. So let's do a thought experiment. Let's say you had a sexual relationship with your former girlfriend, but the relationship didn't work out, and your past sexual activity now begins to affect all future relationships. Now, you may be wondering, well, how does it do that? Let's say you begin dating someone anew, and you eventually will have to disclose your past sexual activity. And let's say your new girlfriend forgives you for your past sexual transgression, but every time you go to kiss your new girlfriend, you may wonder, you may think, hmm, she's not as skillful as my previous girlfriend. Now let's say you fast forward the tape even more. You marry this gal that you're dating. Now before the wedding night, before you consummate your relationship with your new life, you may be wondering, how will she compare to my former girlfriend? And you cannot escape that past sexual sin as much as you try to erase it and blot it out because it affects your present. It shows a mastery in your life. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, but I've confessed that I've slept with my previous boyfriend and my girlfriend. So what should you do now? I mean, does this mean that I'm forever distanced from God? Am I forever tainted? I mean, if I feel guilty, perhaps, of other sexual sins, such as using porn, does that mean those feelings will never go away? No, that's not the case either. Well, why? The reason is this, because there is one who never allowed himself to be mastered by anything in this world. In fact, he dedicated his body to the service of the Lord. When he felt hungry, he was tempted to turn stones into bread. But he said, no. His body would endure lashing and beating so that you could experience a resurrected body because he experienced resurrection first. Since Jesus did all these things for you, there is no condemnation that there is indeed forgiveness and restoration when you confess and repent. And that we who have engaged in sexual sin in the past are to dedicate ourselves once again, our bodies, to the service of God. Now, if your body belongs to God, then what should your response to sexual temptation be? The word here is flee with exclamation mark, flee from sexual morality because you belong to God. Now look at the first half of verse 18. It says that, flee from sexual immorality. Does that mean someone just simply runs in the opposite direction every time they face sexual temptation? Because how if there's a wall obscuring the path of running? Paul might be using the word flee to actually depict earnestness. The earnestness by which you avoid sexual morality. That to flee sexual morality means you never put you, yourself, in a place where you would be sexually tempted. You would never put you and your girlfriend in a situation where you may be tempted sexually. Perhaps you commit to always spending time in a public space with your girlfriend. Maybe you refuse to stay overnight with your boyfriend alone because of potentially what might happen. To flee from sexual morality might mean inviting people into your life to ask how your walk is doing in this particular area. It might mean moving your computer to a public space where everybody can see what you are doing on your computer. And that you pray and ask God to see how you might avoid sexual sin. 
Now let's move on to this last thought that Paul provides. What else do we need to think about when it comes to pursuing sexual purity? How do we avoid sexual sin? It says this, our bodies exist to glorify God, that the purpose of our body, our mission in life is to make God known, and we are to give God credit and praise God with our bodies because we use our bodies ultimately to worship Him, that our bodies exist to glorify God. Now, Paul uses two images in this text to explain why the Corinthians should glorify God in their bodies. There are two images. First image, the image of a temple, that their bodies serve as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. It says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? (coughs) So what is the purpose of the temple of God? The temple of God is supposed to house the Spirit of God. Then the temple, or in the tabernacle, There is a place, the Holy of Holies, and within that room there is the Ark of the Covenant. And upon the Ark of the Covenant there is this cover, the mercy seat, (coughs) where the presence of God would dwell. And the purpose of the temple is to provide a space where people would come, a space where people would come to worship Him, offer their sacrifices, and commune with God. But the presence of God no longer dwells in a man-made temple. Instead, it dwells within believers. Now, the dwelling of the Spirit serves as a metaphor. If someone comes and opens up your body, if a surgeon opens up your chest cavity, he's not going to find the Holy Spirit behind your lung, okay? This is not what it means when we talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. When we talk about the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, it is a metaphor for a deep intimacy with the Lord. It is such a deep intimacy that when people spend time with you, When they converse with you, when they look at you, they see glimpses of God. So that's the first image, the temple. The second image is this, a slave market, that God purchased the bodies of believers to serve him. Look at the latter half of verse 19. It says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your bodies. And I'm focusing on that first phrase, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price that God purchased you through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, that it was as though you were at a slave auction, and, Jesus, and God says, I want that one. And the payment is the death of his son. And since we are his slaves, since we are his servants, we should do his bidding, for slaves carry out the will of their masters. We carry out the will of God. Now, since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, since we have been purchased by the blood of Christ, we should, as Paul says, glorify God in your body. Glorify God with your bodies. This means that we use our bodies to carry out the will of God rather than our own. That means that if we have sexual desires, it means pursuing sex within the context that God designated, marriage. Now, marriage is a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman where they vow to one another that through thick and thin they will love and cherish one another. This means, guys, it might mean giving up your freedoms to love your wife. No more late basketball games with your guys because your wife needs you at home to help with the kids. It might mean setting down your Xbox controller to go wash the dishes. And for wives, it might mean giving up your freedoms to defer to your husband as you share your thoughts about where you'd like to go on vacation 
you defer to your husband to make the decision. You may give up the opportunity to spend time with your girlfriends because your husband is sick and you need to care for him. And you may think to yourself, well, I can't love my wife sacrificially. I can't defer to my husband in this way. And I would say to you, yeah, you're probably right. You can't love your husband or your wife this way, and you can't defer to your husband this way. But then we have someone who did. That Jesus Christ loved us so much that he would give up his life to save us. And that Jesus deferred to the will of his Father so that he could redeem us. And because he deferred to the Father, because he sacrificed his life on the cross, and because we now believe in him, he has now empowered us through the Spirit to be able to do these things. Now, some people may reduce marriage to this simple physical act of sex. Someone might say, well, since we've had sex, this person is now my spouse. This is now my husband. This is now my wife. But then if you think about that, then have you put this person on your house title? Have you given them the keys to your car? Would you introduce this person as your husband or your wife? To reduce marriage to mere sex is to remove the covenantal commitment that is required to help you spiritually grow. So what does this mean if I really want to pursue sexual intimacy with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? Then you have to ask yourself this question. Do you want the entirety of this person, her habits, her shortcomings, her laugh, his snicker, his insecurity, her pride? Will you dedicate your entire life for the benefit of this person, or do you just merely want to use their body for your own sexual gratification? Because if you desire to commit yourself to this person spiritually, emotionally, physically, then to glorify God in this relationship is to pursue this person in marriage, to pursue engagement. And when you get married, that is the space, that is the context where you are to enjoy the joys of sexual intimacy without shame. Now, if you're single, then you may be wondering, okay, well, I have these sexual desires. What am I supposed to do with them? I don't want to indulge in sexual sin. So then I would encourage you to think about this, that you will devote the sexual energy that you have ultimately to the service of the Lord. That instead of focusing on your sexual needs, that you would ask the Lord for help to channel the time that you spend thinking about sex, dreaming about sex, to serve others, to find places to help in the church, to channel that energy into the study of the word, to read good books that help you cultivate your relationship with the Lord, that whatever time you would spend desiring, hoping for sex, you would actually rechannel it by the power of God for your spiritual growth, waiting for that day and for that moment to be able to experience sex within the context of marriage. So how do we become a holy church that avoids sexual morality? First, we have to realize that we may have some faulty thinking in our theology that leads us to justify sexual sin. And second, we need to acknowledge that ultimately our bodies belong to God. And lastly, to know that the purpose of our body is to glorify God. Now, the Toy Stories movies, they follow a character, a cowboy sheriff, Toy, his name is Woody. 
And Woody reminds the other toys in these movies often that they exist for their kids, that they exist to make their kids happy when they are played with. And underneath the boot of Woody, there is a name, Andy, Woody's owner. And Woody exists for the pleasure of Andy. Now, under each of our feet, there's also written a name, written in spiritual ink that you may not see. God. And God created us to glorify him and for his pleasure. And so let us take sexual sin seriously because as a church, we all belong to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we live in a day and age where sexual sin is prevalent everywhere and it tempts us to think that sexual immoral behavior is okay. But we recognize, according to your word, that sexual sin is something that is to be avoided. And we ask that your spirit would help us and to empower us to correct our thinking so that we would avoid to flee sexual sin in our lives, that we would be able to live our lives in such a way that it glorifies and honors you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.